You're listening to Preaching Source, a ministry of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary's School of Preaching. And Dr. Chapel, thank you for giving us this time. You're welcome, uh, Stephen. Glad to be here. Very much a treat. You're on campus, of course, for our expository preaching workshop. And uh, let me begin this, this question. Last night, you gave a formal address on... Um, uh, Christ-centered preaching, broadly speaking, in the in the context of redemptive history. Last night, late, we had a uh, late night informal discussion on preaching. You guys are slave drivers. I know it was brutal, wasn't it? I, <laughs> honestly, I was fading about ten thirty last night. To be honest with you, so, but it seemed like in public discourse and in private conversation, you love to think about and talk about preaching. We don't know each other; it's just my observation. But why is that? Why do you love the exposition of Scripture? I believe the Word transforms people, that the Word is Christ's present ministry to His people, mm. and that when we say the truth that God says in His Word, that God is yet ministering Himself to His people, mm. that, that preaching is a redemptive event, and that in ways that are more profound than we can readily perceive, that when you know those vowels and syllables come out of our mouths, to the extent that we are true to the scriptures, Christ is yet speaking to his people. Mm-hmm. And that, that's an amazing thought, but it is what the word of God says. Yeah. What you have just described is a Trinitarian act. Mm-hmm. Father, Son, and Spirit, all octaves. Do, do you sense that in the preaching moment? I don't always sense it. It is what I by faith believe is occurring because at, at times I can be overwhelmed by my own weakness, inability, or just spiritual dryness. And at that point, I think it's a matter of faith to believe that God is ministering beyond my weakness. And as a faithful uh, expositor, I believe that he is yet present doing his work. Um, you know, I, I at times say the the uh, great churchmen of the past say things we would be afraid to say uh, these days because it, it sounds too bold. Hmm. But, you know, John Calvin once said that... When we speak the Word of God, God has so chosen to anoint the lips and the tongues of His servants that when they speak, the voice of Jesus yet comes out. Now, He said, yet resounds in the church. But that's an amazing thought that, you know, it's just me, (laughs) all my faults and flaws and weaknesses. And yet, Christ is still by His Word, not, not by the person, not by me, but by His Word, Christ yet speaks to his people. And that's a Holy Spirit work, of course, Mm. because the Father is willing for the Son to be expressing his word and by the Spirit working in the heart of the people and communicating the word through the preacher, all the Trinitarian aspects of God are present to minister the very work of Christ among his people. Mm. That's fascinating. I'm reflecting on Calvin's commentary on Colossians 1, where he said, in essence, to remove part of a scripture is to, in a sense, remove part of the glory of Christ, Mm -hmm. because uh, Christ is revealed in his word. Assuming you weren't born a seminary president, Mm -hmm. uh, tell us a little bit about your journey up to this point uh, uh, in a a quick snapshot of of who you are and how you got to this place. Well, I, I, I have never uh, chosen the path I have ended in. I never kind of set out to do any of the things right. to which I have uh, been called. 
Um, I was I was raised the son of, now you'll appreciate this in Southern Baptist circles, I was raised the son of a primitive Baptist preacher. Primitive Baptists uh, are more like Plymouth Brethren. They don't have ordained clergy. Right. They don't have ordained ministers. And um, so my father worked in agriculture, but at the same time, he pastored on a circuit of about uh, two or three small churches as I was growing up. Where, so, where was this? This was in Memphis, Tennessee, okay. or I shall say in the in the West Tennessee area. Okay. So uh, my, my father, uh, a, a wonderful lay-trained uh, preacher, and uh, so I, I grew up. Uh, as it were, hearing that, but not anticipating it. I went to college and in college uh, actually trained in journalism. And uh, in my senior year of college was making those decisions about what to do next in life. And to be honest, Stephen, I was just thinking, now let's see, how much money can I make if I do this? And how big a name can I make if sure. I do that? And fame and fortune were my were my driving motivations. Now, I've but been a believer, believer at the time. You're, I was a believer. Yeah. And I knew that was wrong. Hmm. But it, it was the only thing that was coming to mind, as it were. So in my senior year of college, I, I had run track with the son of the seminary president that I'm now president of, that same seminary. And so I, at Thanksgiving break, got in my car, drove from Chicago, where I was in college, down to St. Louis, where I'd gone to high school. And I met with that seminary president, and he, he did something I'll always remember. He, uh, he met me in his office, but when I said, I'm, I'm kind of wondering what I should be do, doing that's, that's true to my convictions, he, uh, he turned out the light in his office, walked out the door, and said, come with me, took me to his home, and for that whole afternoon, we sat on the sofa in his living room, and he listened to me, and at the end of that time, he said, why don't you come to seminary for a year and just think about priorities? I said, I, I'm... I think I'm off to law school. He said, well, you know, maybe just think about it. And I said, ah, seminary is all cloistered and protected. I want to be in the right. real world. Right. And he said, it, it might not be as protected as you think. <laughs> so uh, I went to seminary for just a year. That was my intention. And by the end of that year, now you'll appreciate this, Stephen, I was actually asked to pastor a little bitty country church. And um, I loved it. I mm. absolutely loved it. Mm. I love preaching the Word. I loved working with people. I loved seeing the Spirit work. And not ever planning even to stay in seminary, suddenly I was the pastor of a small church. And for what it's worth, it made my seminary studies come alive. Wow. When I began to see, you know, here's, here's what difference it makes to know this or that. I'm, I'm not a natural student. And uh, so when uh, I began to see the power of what I was doing, that made my seminary studies more real. And uh, so I, I pastored in that church and then another church I pastored for about 10 years. And then the seminary from which I graduated asked me to come and teach preaching. I said no for a while. But again, the Lord opened doors just, just a few miles from us was a university that offered a Ph.D. in speech communication. Hmm. And uh, I, I had not had a master's, but they, they let me into the program uh, finished a program, went to the seminary. For two years, I taught preaching and then resigned. And I told the president at the time, uh, I, I like teaching, but it's not all of who I yeah. am. I, I so much enjoy the interaction with people and church uh, yeah. progress and planning. So um, he said, well, why don't you become the dean of faculty? And I said, you're kidding. I said, I'm the youngest member of the faculty here, and you already have a dean of faculty. And he said, no, he's resigned, but I haven't told anybody. <laughs> so so there I became the dean of faculty without any intention. I was actually is, resigning. At Covenant. At Covenant. I, I, and I was resigning. And, and yet he said, be the dean <laughs> of faculty. So I 
I love that. I, I love both teaching and administrating. I, I say sometimes I, I found teaching not all of who I was, hmm. but if I only administered, I'd go crazy. Yeah. And being able to do both was very meaningful to me. And I, I did that for about seven years. And then that president left and uh, I was asked to be the president without, again, having that intention. So now I've done that for about 20 years. Yeah. So Incredible. It, it, no, no step was my intention, but the Lord just kind of kept leading me down a, a path. Yeah. Providence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I've heard you reference uh, one time uh, writing, and then last night you talked about, you used this phrase, the Christ-centered preaching movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've made a uh, significant contribution into the world of homiletics literature with your book, Christ-Centered Preaching. has become a staple in seminary classrooms. I use it as a required textbook in my classroom. Uh, so assuming our listeners are aware with that text, if not, they need to become familiar with it. But, but beyond that, you, I think, by the way, I've just seen you implicitly express that, see that book as a contribution, as a part of a larger whole of perhaps a movement of sorts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so t- speak to that just briefly, if you would. What, what do you see as a Christ-centered preaching movement? You, you and I, in the schools that we serve, are more closely identified with schools that were established just prior or after the modernist fundamentalist movements in the right. United States. We kind of got traction, even Southern Baptist schools older than, of course, that movement, but got traction during that time. Right. And it really was during the 20th century over the battle for the Bible that so many evangelical seminaries really became established and, and flourished. But the battle for the Bible was more a statement of what's true and if you will, what lifestyle should be endorsed as Christians. That those really became the battles of the mid and late 20th century. And what began to happen, nobody intended for it to happen as such, is that Christianity often got defined by what you believe and what you do. Hmm. Will you put on the uniform of what right. it means to be an evangelical Christian? Right. And without anybody intending it, what began to happen is we began to drift into a, a, a form of legalism, and uh, I, I always say as a Presbyterian, we are sure that no one is saved by right works, but we're pretty convinced that people are saved by right thinking. Right. Right. <laughs> but that's not true. We are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's we right. are saved by His work on our behalf, not because we're more correct in our doctrine or behavior. Right. And there were people who began to say that prior to me and began to say, you know what, what's happening in the scriptures is God is not just saying, here's duty and doctrine. He's actually saying, here's how I am providing for people who cannot provide for themselves. Mm. And that message is from first to last. Mm. That, that message was in the early 20th century through people like Gerhardus Voss, who was teaching at Princeton Seminary at the time right. when it was much more solid in its theology. It kind of went underground for a while, and then in the 50s and 60s, it began to surface again through people like John Sanderson, through people like Edmund Clowney, who were in some ways voices in the wilderness mm. because they were evangelical, Bible-believing, and yet they were saying, just telling people to live straight is not the real message right. of the Bible. Mm. Now, their voices were not heard so much, but then the, uh, the movement grew as people like Sidney Gradanus. I followed Sidney Gradanus, and others began to say, there is more in the Bible than just telling people to straighten up and fly right. right. The message is, God has provided for you, and in response to that, the heart desires to follow Him. Right. 
So that's that's been my contribution is trying to systematize it into a homiletical understanding. Yeah. The practical expression of that, if you will, for a, for a preacher out there who may be unfamiliar with the conversation, is that you can look at any text of the Scripture and not find where Jesus pops his head up somewhere in that text, but place that text in a redemptive history that always gets to Christ. Mm -hmm. And so what a, what a liberating way to faithfully preach the gospel from any text. What a, what a gift to preachers, for sure, doing this. It, it really is just being true to the scope of Scripture to yeah. say, uh, you know, we tease about it at Christmas time. History is really his story. And to be able to say to people, that is exactly right. All the scriptures are his story. Yeah. It doesn't mean Jesus is mentioned everywhere. Right. But God is unfolding a plan of which Jesus is the culminating piece. Right. And when you begin it's to fantastic. read scripture that way, you say, oh, now it makes sense. Yeah. It's not, you know, Samson had long hair, therefore I should have. No, <laughs> no, no. He, yeah. Here's the message. When everyone did what was right in his own eyes, that didn't work. That's right. And therefore we understand that there has to be something other than human judgment that is guiding us. And every portion of the Bible has a purpose in leading us to understand the necessity mm. and the provision of Christ. Mm. Well, I, this is going to sound horribly reductionistic, but I often think that the theocentric versus a Christocentric debate is, is somewhat uh, pretentious because if you were to get God in the corner and say, hey, who are you exalting because of his humiliation, Philippians 2? It's Christ. Mm -hmm. And so it, it is almost as if the explanation of a text in light of its redemptive history is a way of agreeing with God's purposes for the exaltation of Christ. And what a beautiful thing. The purpose of the Holy Spirit that gave the scriptures we are told was to represent Christ. Yes. I mean, that, that is the Holy Spirit's calling, yeah. is to present Christ. And that was the Father's will that it be so. Yeah. And uh, I say in another book called Christ-Centered Worship at one point, you know, the Father and the Holy Spirit are not sulking in the corner because right. we're exalting Christ. Yeah, <laughs> they, they actually believe that's yeah. what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, they're for it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's fantastic. Well, and it, it changed the tenor of a preacher, too. I mean, what, what better remedy against a self-help uh, type of um, uh, massage uh, psychological preaching than to preach as someone who's representing a Christ who will be exalted no matter what. What a wonderful tenor. And the way in which we know the Father is through the Son. Yeah. So if you, if you truly understand the work of the Son on your behalf, you know the Father. Yeah. And of course, it's the Spirit who has opened that revelation to your heart. Yeah. Okay, we need another hour just to talk about that. Uh, what sweeter thing to talk about than to Christ exalted. But I, I, I want to get to something that uh, is uh, perhaps everyone would be interested in. Um, you are preparing a text. Uh, let, let's say there's no particular time constraints. You're comfortable with time constraints. We have your textbook. We know how you prepare sermons. But take us through that process for you and your stage of life, your uh, giftedness, strengths, weaknesses, abilities, resources. What do you do uh, in that process? Maybe highlighting some things that are unique to you uh, that you find helpful in preparing that sermon from text to sermon, moment to, of conception to delivery. This, this is where I'm unashamed honest about how I actually go through the process. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely, yeah. I want the seedy underbelly of the preparation process, <laughs> if there is one. Um, just to be plain, I, I will start with a study Bible. So I, I, I will um, assume that a good study Bible these days is going to alert me to the basic issues that are in the text. So reading the notes at the bottom, I just engaged. I read the notes. I yeah. may read the introduction and so okay. forth. And now, now, Stephen, you and I have been preaching long enough that 
I, I basically know what most of the books of the Bible are about. Right. I'm, I'm not, there was a time I didn't. You know, there was a time, you know, my first time through Philippians, I might not have known that Paul was in prison when he wrote. Right. You know, I do know that now. I've, right. I've preached long enough. But, you know, the, the introduction is going to tell me certain things in a study Bible. So, and there are certainly many, many passages of the Bible that I kind of approach them going, I, I didn't know that, or, yeah. or I need to know something. So a study Bible alerts me to just the basics. So I will, I will start my preparation looking at the passage, of course, reading the text and rereading the text, but, but getting my bearings in a study Bible. And in the study Bible, uh, I typically do not beyond that turn to a commentary as a next step. Usually what I will do with a study Bible is I will begin to outline uh, the passage that I'm going to preach on. Any particular study Bible? um, I actually use two. I I use an NIV study Bible and an ESV study Bible. And um, when I use, now again, I'm from a reform background, so I use the Reformation study Bible as the one that I will... Uh, used from the NIV uh, background, and the, but I'll also use the ESV Study Bible. It's actually more comprehensive, and uh, but not entirely always written from a doctrinal perspective that I would agree with at times. Right. As you may know, the ESV, which I'm an endorser of, yeah. as, is more a compendium of scholars, and so it's it's more eclectic in what is put together. Right. A, a Reformation Study Bible typically will have more issues that people of a Reformed background or is more focused upon. Mm-hmm. So I use both of those. I will, I will outline the text. Uh, having outlined the text, I will then begin to think of things like, what's the best way to communicate this? I don't mm-hmm. presume that my exegetical outline is going to be my homiletical outline. Right. But I will use the, the exegetical outline to kind of develop the thought flow of the text, what's going on there, yeah. and begin to understand. I also begin to identify where my questions are. Yeah. And um, now, more and more these days, my exegetical questions I answer with software. Um, I'm, the, the, I knew more Hebrew once upon a time than I know now. Right. I knew more Greek once upon a time you than I know now. Logos. So I use Logos. Logos. Okay. Yeah, and and so I use Bible software as part of kind of preparing that exegetical outline. I will try to figure out what are the exegetical pivot points in here. Right. What are the key issues, what I call pinpoint exegesis? And you're doing this on your computer, longhand? I'm doing, doing it longhand. longhand. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, writing the outline longhand, and um, th- I will, having done that, and I, because I, before I will do the homiletical outline, I will ask the two questions I spoke to people last night about, and I will put on those spectacles one lens, which is the question, what does this tell me about the nature of God who provides redemption? Mm-hmm. And then I'll also say, what does this tell me about the nature of humanity mm-hmm. that requires redemption? So yeah. what's this telling me about God? What's this telling me about me? So exegetical outline with research. Um, I may even at that stage look at some other commentators. I don't always do that, but but frequently I'll look at other commentaries you know, people that I want to be saying, "What I wonder what so and so has thought about this." Yeah. And um, we said it last night. Precept Austin is a great place to go and yeah. look at a whole bunch of different preachers or commentators at yeah. once. I I uh, I don't take out the uh, the hard copy books as much as I once did. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Stephen, you're a little bit like me. I travel on planes a great deal. Yeah. And what I often do is I'll go to some of those hard copy commentaries and I'll say to my secretary, photocopy these pages right. and I'll take those on the plane. I write a lot of sermons on planes. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so I'll, I'll have that uh, commentary portions. But between a few websites 
and uh, the photocopies of some key pages out of some commentaries. That's usually the research that I will do for the exegetical outline. Homiletical outline where I'm saying, how am I going to communicate this? Right. I will take that step. Was this telling me about God? Was it? And I'll begin to then say, all right, how do I best communicate what's here? Okay, so you're thinking two documents. You've exegetical outline. You set that aside. That's kind of really. That's on the left hand of my desk, okay. and on the right side, I'm preparing the homiletical outline. Okay, so you're looking at that physically. These pages, yes. legal pad, something like this. Yes, yeah. exactly. Okay, and then on your right, another legal pad. Yes, and you're writing out your sermon outline. I'm writing out my my homiletical sermon outline. Okay. And um, I'll get that down. Now, I also, I forgot to just say a step. I almost always, um, if I know what's coming up in my preaching schedule, I will have a file that is on that passage where I've been throwing magazine articles or illustrations. I'll, I'll usually have that as a third folder. Yeah. And it's got some um, Actual illustration ideas. File. Yeah, yeah, physical file. Yeah. So m maybe that's the third thing on my desk. Yeah. And uh, so as I'm creating the homiletical outline, I'm also kind of ravaging that uh, what I call pre-sermon file with articles or statistics or right. illustration ideas. And I'm beginning to fit those illustrations into the homiletical outline. And I'll get the homiletical outline pretty much where I want it. And then I, you heard me say last night, I then write out a manuscript. So yeah. I, I write out the sermon at that point. And um, that, that just is a discipline for me of thinking carefully through what I want to say and, and not saying, I'll think about it later or something will come to me when I'm preaching. Yeah. I, just, I just do that process. And then my last step is having written out in manuscript form the sermon, I then convert to what I call a pulpit outline, okay. which is almost always a page or even half a page yeah. of summary of what that sermon has been. And I am somewhat blessed to have a fairly good memory. So I I even don't use that a whole lot in the pulpit right. most of the time, but it's my little safety net right. that's that I, I have those notes making me feel comfortable. So you're not turning pages. You, you, you're in the preaching moment. Your Bible is there and one page of notes are there and you can, you oh. can go to if you need it. Okay. Most of the time. That okay. would be the way it works. So you, you've, uh, tell us about what you do with that. Exegetical work, you have that paper, you have your manuscript, you file that away, have it typed up. What do you do with that after that's done? Or? Uh, well, I should say the manuscript, I do type out. So okay. I, I handwrite my exegetical outline, I handwrite my homiletical outline, but then I work faster on the keyboard actually writing out the manuscript. Okay, interesting. So that's, that's on computer. Yeah. And... Um, as you heard me say last night, I don't want anybody to look at my manuscripts because they are, they're just for me. Yeah. You know, it's flow of thought. It's yeah. just pushing me forward. It's not grammatical. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, yeah. it's, but it's just forcing me to think through all the segments and, and movements of the sermon. Yeah. And, and by the way, the pulpit outline, I think I could say, so that final step after the manuscript, the thing that I convert, the pulpit outline is often not identical to the manuscript. In other mm. words, even as I'm converting to the pulpit, I'm thinking, eh, it would work better this way. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to switch those parts around. And it may flip again when I'm actually in the pulpit. You yeah. know? I, I don't feel, I feel bound to say what the Spirit has put upon my heart to say in the moment that I'm preaching. I'm not bound to my notes. Mm. I want to be bound to That's the great. dynamics of what I feel are happening in that moment. And you commented last night that that freedom comes from the discipline of preparation. So the more deeply you're prepared to know exactly what you're going to say, 
the more you can deviate from that and be free to be sensitive to the Spirit in the preaching moment. I, I think so. F- feeling confident of where you are, what you know, having your feet kind of firmly on the ground of, I know what this passage is about, I know what it's emphasizing, I know what I... Then I'm able to say, you know what, I, I in this moment now feel I can actually vary from my plans because I know what's intended in this text, yeah. and I recognize it will be more powerful if I do this or that. Yeah. It's interesting, as I've done these interviews, almost everybody I've talked to has some paper element in there. Mm. They're writing out something, doing something longhand. There's something maybe about that, the discipline that gets it in the mind more clearly than than anything else. I, I don't know if you do this. I, sometimes my students, because I don't, it's going to be a little awkward because today I'm preaching a sermon here that I actually use more notes because I got more quotations than than would be normal. But um, most of the time, uh, I don't use much in the way of notes. And and even, I've even said that half page of paper I right. usually take in the pulpit I, is more of a, a safety net than something I use. And students ask me at times, you know, how do you how do you memorize all of that? And I say, you know, I really don't set about to memorize. That's not really my intention. But but even at this stage, I do have a certain process of imprinting that I believe in. You've just said one. I believe in creating that pulpit outline. And by the way, I should say I go back to handwriting when I do the pulpit outline, yeah. that last step. Right. I think something is happening when you're seeing it, reading it, your hand is creating it, it's impressing on your mind in somewhat. Then I I typically will run through a message once or twice the day before I preach it. And I don't know if you do this, Stephen. I always look at my message. It sits on my bedside. I look huh. at my message the last thing before I go to sleep. And then before I get out of bed, I look at it when I wake up in the morning. And, and I actually believe there's a process of imprinting that's going on that's yeah. that's putting it in my brain, and um, that's just part of what I go through. Yeah, I'll do that at times. If I don't have any other time, I'll at least take a few minutes to read over it before mm-hmm. I go to bed. And mm-hmm. I always I do everything on the computer, but the last thing I'll do is take out some just some blank sheets of printer paper and just see if I can write it out by hand without any notes. Mm-hmm. And that discipline, if I can do that, I feel comfortable. I can complete it without any dependence upon notes in the delivery moment. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, just a few minutes left. Uh, just in a couple of seconds, you're sitting uh, in the chair. You're about to give them preach. Golfers talk about swing thoughts. What are those last-minute thoughts that are going through your mind as you're about to walk up into the pulpit? You know what? Nobody's ever asked me that question before. That's very interesting. So I'm trying to think, what what am I normally thinking? Um, I don't know if your life is like mine. I am usually a guest preacher. So I'm usually usually thinking like things like, let me make sure I remember the name of the pastor. (laughs) (laughs) Let me make sure I greet people properly. Um, As as odd as it may sound, um, just the way my mind works, if I can... Remember the first things to say. I almost don't have to think about anything else. Right. So I may glance at my notes a time or two just to say, all right, the first thing I plan to say is this. And right. I may just get that first thing, kind of make sure I'm not free. The very first thing. And I, uh, people are wired differently. But I, I tend to know if I can say the first things that I intend, everything else will flow. Will flow, yeah. And so I'm I'm probably reviewing just the first things, the pastor's name, the name of the church, <laughs> and my greeting comments. <laughs> That's good. Well, you, you, if you don't have that, you can give up a lot. Yeah. You take a lot of preparation, but it's lost in those first few seconds. Uh-huh. So, all right, uh, five questions. Let's close. One sentence response to these. Um, are you encouraged or discouraged about the state of exposition today? 
<laughs> encouraged. Okay. But it's modified. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, the single greatest mistake young preachers make. Winging it. Lack of preparation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thinking that they'll be okay in the pulpit without really preparing. Okay. Wow. My favorite song or hymn? In Christ Alone. Huh. Uh, but at my burial, do there is a fountain filled with blood. Yeah. <laughs> you know, why? Because I know the story of William Cooper. Yeah. And I, I'm so moved by... Um, the Lord drawing a straight line with a crooked stick yeah. and, uh, you know, a broken man that the Lord wonderfully used and really the brokenness of his heart so much coming out in the hymnody that he wrote. Yeah. And in Christ alone, because? Well, uh, two reasons. Um, the words are good, yeah. but I'm in traditions at times where I think people do not only believe that the best hymns were written a long time ago. Yeah. I love being able to champion this generation's yeah. hymnody and, and to say to people, if, if we believe only the past provides our hymnody, then we actually do not give hope to the present generation yeah. of its contribution to the church. So I love being able to point to what I think is a great hymn and say, that's this generation's theology. Great. So you and I both are in seminary settings where we are champions of young people. And I want to yeah. champion this generation's hymnody as well. Excellent. All right, two more. Uh, I wish I was a Southern Baptist because... <laughs> you don't have because they are more enthusiastic just... <laughs> in the pulpit than we Presbyterians. Okay. Yeah. So I, when, I, when, when I'm in Presbyterian churches at times and I preach, people will say, you know, you preach just like the Southern Baptist preacher I grew up with. And I'll say, well, that's because my dad was a primitive Baptist preacher. <laughs> so that isn't a slight to you. You're encouraged by that. Well, that's good. All right. Uh, I have one text to preach uh, before I die or one genre of pre text uh, to preach before I die. What, what is it? Galatians 2.20. Because? Well, it talks about our union with Christ, and in doing so, presents the whole gospel. It, it just, it really is the gospel in a nutshell. Mm. Now, you know, everyone would say, well, John 3.16 or Zephaniah 3.17, all of those, wonderful as well. And yet, at least for what I have tried to do in life, to talk about you cannot do anything apart from Christ. That is why Christ has to be in your messages. Otherwise, you teach people to be independent Christians, which is an, you know, absolutely impossible. So to talk about the necessity of Christ, but not only the necessity, the enabling power of Christ mm. that comes about through our union with him is, is wonderfully expressed so succinctly in Galatians 2.20. Mm. Dr. Chabell, it's been a treat to have you on our campus, and thanks for giving us this half hour. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, thanks for your contribution to Christ-centered preaching. I'd like to turn the attention of our listeners to your uh, two or three very important works on preaching among the, about the dozen other books that you've written, uh, our expository preaching workshop in uh, the spring of 2012, where you unpacked that in two sessions for us, and we're looking forward to the sermon this afternoon. Thank you for giving us this time. Very, Thank very you, grateful. Steve. 